At the center position, it is six year for Marquette. Seven one, number twenty two, Jim McElvain. Haley with it inside. Fakes. Blocked again. McElvain almost caught that one. Scott gives it right back. Dickey hit it. Blocked again by McElvain. And McElvain has shown with Mirasan out of the lineup that he is a valuable asset, especially defensively and blocking shots. He's already blocked five today, and he came into today's action having blocked 18 shots over the past three games. Inside McElvain with the slam. This is a highlight show for him, John. Third follow blocked again by McElvain. Brings it up. Inside McElvain for the slam. Freewell has a shot blocked by McElvain. He is the real deal. Make no mistake about it. McElvain blocks Freewell. A great block by McElvain. McElvain, good save by McElvain. He faked Rozier nicely with an up and under. Bullets seem to be in sync right now offensively. Here's McElvain. McElvain on a great feed that time. Joe Smith going strong in the hoop. Has it blocked by McElvain. McElvain. Jimmy Lyon about the day. He's a real shot blocker. He's for real in the lane. What's up, everybody? This is a Not My House podcast. This is your host, Eric, and as usual, co-host Zach. Zach, say what's up. What's up, guys? And we have a very special guest today in the house. Um, this gentleman played in the NBA for a couple of seasons. He was an amazing shot blocker, went to Marquette, um, very awesome basketball player. We're really privileged to have him on, Mr. Jim McElvain. Jim, how are you doing today? Good. I appreciate you having me on. You play guitar, huh? I do. I do. That's what I do for a living. Yep. Do you really for a living? How's, how's the living going lately? Not good, huh? Uh, it's bad. Um, I can't – I basically teach online lessons right now because all my gigs are gone. Yeah. Yeah, it sucks. Just when I thought it was coming back again, we started playing again. Next thing you know, boom, no. So – yeah, it's, it's kind of frustrating. What'd you say? Where are you based out of? Uh, Reno, Nevada. Oh, Reno. Awesome. Yeah, yeah so it's uh, – yeah, it's kind of hard. All the casino gigs are dried out because of this. It's – yeah, you, I just – I can't even work, basically, which is crazy, so. I got a friend in New Orleans who's a trumpet player. He's going through the same thing right now. Yeah, it's difficult. And especially with us, I mean, you know, it's not like we can collect – we can collect unemployment. You know, unfortunately, because we're all independent contractors, so it, it really yeah. kills us. We're, you know, musicians are last on the totem pole, unfortunately, when it comes to being taken care of for anything. Um, we had Travis Diener on, who grew up as a Wisconsin kid. I know you were also. What was your experience like growing up in Wisconsin? It was cold. Maybe yeah. that's why I bought a place in Florida. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was better basketball than I probably would have anticipated. We had a, a killer AAU team in high school. We prob our 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 roster probably rivaled size wise any NBA roster in the league at the time. Wow. Um, we had myself, another well six eleven Dion Mims, who went probably about two sixty. Um, Jeff Peterson, who was six eleven, and then we had a slew of guys that were six seven, six eight, six nine. And it was just, and it was all Wisconsin guys. It wasn't like, you know, these teams are now where we had to fly people in or people moved from out of the country to a prep school that somebody created out of nothing and, you know, Bumble Stump, Wisconsin. These were all guys that were high school kids in Wisconsin. 
and mostly southeastern Wisconsin. Dion and Ty Evans, who played at Richmond, uh, came over from Beloit. And Kevin Rankin, who's also 6'11", uh, played for Northwestern. He came down from Green Bay in our second year. But everybody else was mostly southeastern Wisconsin guys. So basically all the guys too tall to play hockey? <laughs> bigger in Wisconsin, but it's really not. It's uh, Minnesota, it's, it's pretty big up there, but there's just no rinks around here. And the rinks that are around here, it's impossible to get ice time. I got friends that are into hockey in Dallas, and they've got a bigger, better hockey presence than we do. And you know, they got like, league games at 2 in the morning because that's the only time they could get the rink. And they're wow. Nuts. <laughs> it's got to be because of the stars coming there to Dallas. It's got to be, right? Because I don't think they had that yeah. presence before, right? And, and Wisconsin had this fantastic couple, um, Lloyd Pettit and Jane Bradley. They tried to get the Hartford Whalers to come to Milwaukee. They built an arena for hockey, the Bradley Center. Yeah. And uh, thought they were going to get the Whalers, and it didn't pan out. And so uh, Marquette and the Bucks ended, and the Milwaukee Admirals IHL team ended up playing in this hockey arena for, I don't know, 20 30 years or so until they tore it down and built the new Pfizer Forum. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, because then the Whalers turned into somebody else. I'm not a big hockey fan, but I know that they they ended up being, I think, bought out and then turned into a different hockey team. And that's a shame because I know people from that area like were way into that hockey team. Um, that's all they got up there in Hartford, right? Pretty much, right? <laughs> yeah, pretty much, especially when the weather gets bad. You're not traveling. Hey, so I got a question for you in terms of like, was basketball your first sport growing up? Like, how'd you get into sports? Was baseball your first sport? No, I went to uh, Pratt Elementary School for kindergarten, which was a walk within walking distance of my house. And the teachers had a strike that year. And so I missed a bunch of kindergarten. And my mom got fed up with that. And so she wanted to put me in parochial schools so she wouldn't have to worry about teachers going on strike and her, and her kids not being taught because I had a younger brother two years behind me. So um, my mom, her, her parents and grandparents are from Poland, um, grew up in Chicago. And so she wanted, you know, at the time where I grew up in Racine, there was a parish for every ethnicity. And so there was a Polish parish, uh, St. Stanislaus on the south side of town. So that was, she, she looked at St. Edward's near us and, this is a long way to tell this story, but um, they were sharing textbooks. She didn't like that. She, so she sent me to St. Stan's where Monsignor Wachkowiak looked over the place. And uh, I was like one of four white kids in the whole school because it was a predominantly black neighborhood. And uh, I got picked on and, and pushed around. And there's one other kid in my class, Brian Matson, who also was a towhead like me. And, you know, they, they looked at us and like, you guys brothers? I'm like, no, why? Because <laughs> you look like, well, okay, now I understand, you know, all, all white people. And, and people think, confuse me with Frank Burkowski in Seattle. It's like, yeah, all white guys. Are black. <laughs> so I went there for one year and it was just such a bad learning environment because the classrooms were so disruptive. My mom pulled me out of there and then sent me over to the Bohemian Parish, St. John Nepomuk on the north side of town. And, uh, it was there that I kind of picked up sports in general in second grade, just as kind of a social thing because all my friends in class were doing it. And it's like, okay, I'll do it. My parents were not athletic at all. My dad struggled through his whole life. He enjoyed golf, but he was never very good at it. 
and played it his whole life. And my mom didn't do any sports. My older siblings didn't do anything, but we had a really musical family. Um, my, my dad played um, baritone and was one of the oldest participants in Tuba Christmas down in Chicago until he passed. He died last year at 89. Um, and my mom played the piano and loved to sing. And all my siblings played instruments. And I grew up playing the drums. And I've been, I, I took guitar lessons for about four or five years not that long ago and I still suck at it <laughs> and I'm I, I think both my guitars are in Florida right now but I you know I like the the challenge of it and it helps helps me disengage from work every day but yeah absolutely we're not a sports family we're we're a musical family but and even though my older siblings were tall and tried you know volleyball and stuff they were never very good at it so they just stuck to music and um, my younger brother and I did the sports thing and we ended up being pretty good at it. But I, I started out with in the same school year basketball and T-ball and then eventually did the field part of track and field, you know, in the parochial school system in Racine and never played football. My parents wouldn't allow it. And I was heartbroken over it, but appreciated it years later. Sure. Uh, and pretty much never did baseball. I stopped at softball, did T-ball and softball, but never baseball. And then, uh, then I got hooked on this summer camp, Camp Anakiji in Plymouth, Wisconsin, and started going up there as a five-year-old Indian guide. And then summer camp, and I just wanted to spend every summer up there. So I ended up, like, driving to City League in Chicago in the summer to play basketball in high school while I was working as a counselor at the camp. And I'd, like, pull over on the side of the road on the way back and take a nap because I was so tired of it. <laughs> I knew I wasn't going back to that camp anytime soon once I got out of high school because basketball just dominated my life. So I wanted to get as much of it in as I could. And I taught uh, water skiing and sailing there and still love to water ski and sail. And, and so now that I'm done playing basketball, until my younger kids get back and get into sports, I probably won't do much. Yeah. And, uh, it's, it's clear that you took the basketball serious because in high school, I, looking at your numbers, you were dominant 23 points a game, 11 rebounds, eight blocks a game, uh, really great rim protector. Was there anybody that you tried to emulate your game after growing up? Like who were your, uh, who were the guys that you studied? Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Will Chamberlain were the two guys I gravitated, gravitated to in grade school just because I looked at their numbers and they were so dominant and Kareem was still playing so I could watch him. Um, Wilt was done, but I was impressed to hear stories because at the time there was no internet, but you hear stories about Will Chamberlain. Like he's thinking about coming back and playing for the Nets at 45 or 50 or whatever. And he's, you know, playing beach volleyball and dominating people and that is just kind of a side fun thing to do. So I was always really impressed with, with their uh, ability. In uh, my, my high school, I, I was fortunate enough to play for a guy named Bob Letch, who's one of the best high school coaches in the state of Wisconsin ever. He's won a bunch of state championships, sent a bunch of kids to Division I schools. Um, and I also played on that AAU team in high school that was coached by Rick Cobb, who also played at Marquette. And, and it was really a benefit to me to play on that AAU team and, and be coached by Coach Letch because it, I had such a fundamental grounding in the game, especially defensively. It was stressed and emphasized. And, um, and then Rick allowed me to be in an environment where I could really hone my skills against not just the best players in the state, but the best players in the country. And, and uh, 
we were kind of in that first generation of AAU guys that played all year round. And when I got drafted by the Bullets, um, Juwan Howard and I were talking with each other. We were kind of glad that we got drafted together because at least we know at least one guy on the team because he was in the City League in Chicago. And I'd play against him there and, and Marquette recruited him. And um, it, it was fascinating to me to see how small the world of basketball gets when you get to the NBA because by the time I got there, most of the guys in the draft I had played against in college or played against in high school or AU or five-star and, uh, and quickly got up to speed with a lot of other guys. And, and they're kind of like extended family, um, like Judd Bushler or Steve Kerr and, or Bison Daly, because they played for Kevin O'Neill and got recruited by Kevin O'Neill at Arizona, who was my coach at Marquette. So you have that common bond with guys when you, when you both know somebody who's absolutely crazy and you've had a bunch of fun life experiences with them. You get to talk to them and hit it off the bat right away. It's, it's kind of, it's, it's nice, nice feeling. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, did you ever consider going anywhere else but Marquette or were you just happy to be, uh, you know, basically back home or what, what other places were you looking at? I wasn't going to stay in Wisconsin because it was cold. <laughs> um, yeah. I had Arizona and Florida state. Pat Kennedy and Lute Olson came in for a home visit. Arkansas Little Rock, because my family used to vacation in Hot Springs, and we really liked it down there. Um, Jim Herrick at UCLA recruited me and came into the home, and I took a visit there. And then Gary Pym was the coach at UC Santa Barbara, and uh, he and Ray Lopes were recruiting me there. And I took a visit to UC Santa Barbara, and then Eddie Fogler was recruiting me at Vanderbilt. And Marquette was really the only school in the North that I was thinking about. Yeah. A um, little, little bit with Northwestern, um, um, but I, I took an unofficial visit there just because it's not that far from my house, but I didn't really want to go there. And, and Bill Foster just said, come on, just, you know, come take a visit. So, you know, people know we're recruiting some serious players. I'm, all right, whatever. So <laughs> Yeah, let me um, say you're looking at all the warm places from what it sounds like. I was, and Kevin O'Neill was recruiting me when he was at Arizona, and then he took the job at Marquette and told me that, you know, he kind of introduced it like, you know, I've been meaning to tell you, I don't think Arizona's the right school for you. You really should probably stay home, and and by the way, I'm the new head coach at Marquette. And, <laughs> and so Yeah, that works. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, people thought that it was – like Rick Cobb went to Marquette and delivered myself and Damon Key, who was a phenomenal high school player. He was like Mr. Basketball in Wisconsin. I was the AP player of the year, my senior year. And then we had a third guy, Rob Logderman, who was first team all state with us at uh, Janesville Craig. He wasn't on our AAU team, but Damon and I played on the same AAU team. And I think people thought Rick Cobb like started the the team there's these conspiracies he started it to undermine wisconsin badger basketball with steve yoder and he he was going to deliver you know damon and i to marquette and and as it turned out Otto mcduffie and jeff peterson and larry heisel jr all ended up playing for uw madison so it's you know rick just wanted us to get better as players and he didn't care where we went to school calvin rayford went to kansas and Silas Mills went to Utah. We had guys going all over the place. So a couple of us went to Marquette, but not certainly not all of us. And um, so I think playing against Damon in high school, because he was at Mar um, Marquette High School in Milwaukee, and I was at Racine St. Catharines, 
Um, and then playing with him in the summertime made me get real comfortable with Damon. I really enjoyed playing with him. Our, our games complemented each other very well at the offensive and defensive end. And we just destroyed people in AAU. And that was on a national scene playing in the big tournaments and going to Vegas and John Farrell's Nike Invitational and the Easter Classic. And, and we didn't know what to expect. We're just a bunch of kids from Wisconsin. We thought we'd get our butts handed to us. But right. we actually right. even held our own against a lot of these teams. And, uh, you know, I remember we when we got out to the, the Easter tournament in Vegas the first year, we are staying at the, uh, the Sahara. And we get on the elevator, and we don't know what to expect. We see some tall kids walk around in the lobby, but, you know, nobody – ESPN's not talking about high school basketball. And, and they have, like, these little hoop scoop – you know, cheapo eight and a half by 11, full and a half printed magazines. You could subscribe to Hoop Scoop to find out who the top players were in the country. But aside from that, there wasn't any, you know, internet recruiting services. So we're all kind of blind out in Vegas. We got in the elevator with some guys from this AAU team from Alaska. And uh, they're like, where are you from, Wisconsin? Oh, we're from Alaska. And they're like, well, how do you think you're going to do? We have no idea. We've never done anything like this before. <laughs> and they said, well, you know, we came out here last year and we got our butts handed to us, but we think it's going to be different this year. We're, we're not sure if we're going to win, but we've got all the best players from the whole state of Alaska on our team this year. So we'll more than hold our own out here. And then we got off the elevator and we're like, holy cow. They picked, they cherry-picked all the best kids out of Alaska and they, they know talent here and they're going to do – we didn't do that. There's probably some good players we left in Wisconsin. Man, we're gonna get sm- that team from Alaska got smoked again. They didn't come within 20 or 30 points of anybody. And, oh, wow. and we ended up – we didn't win it, but we ended up holding our own against some teams with some really good players. I remember Ed, the O'Bannon brothers were out there because they were um, Artesia High School in California. A lot of the California guys um, would come over to that Vegas tournament. So we saw a lot of West Coast people. And then when you play the AAU stuff, like I remember the Indiana team was stacked. They had the Ross twins who ended up playing at Notre Dame. Uh, was it Alan Henderson that played at Duke? No, Indiana. He played at Indiana, right? Yeah, he's Indiana. Yeah, and then uh, Eric Montross from North Carolina was on that team. And Link Darner, who played at Purdue, was on that team. And Damon Bailey. They just – they had – that. you know, that was like our second year, like – Almost right away, everybody figured out, oh, you got to come in with a stacked squad. And uh, Stevin Smith, Headache, was on a team with Greg Ostertag. Um, and we ended up losing to those guys in the finals of a tournament in Vegas. And they had a bunch of guys that ended up playing at Texas and Kansas. And it was, it was a team out of, out of Texas. And, and so it was, it was kind of neat. I've got a VHS tape somewhere. That was the first time we were ever on TV. We were the Vic Taney Warriors. <laughs> and Vic Taney was the local health club in Wisconsin. They just sponsored us on a whim, and suddenly we got them on national TV. They thought that was the greatest thing ever. <laughs> We've got to get these tapes on YouTube somewhere. I will. I will. I also have, I have the uh, – and my dad bought it, but it was the VHS tape from the All-Star game at Five Star Basketball Camp. And Christian Leitner was one of my counselors that week, and Grant Hill was in camp that week. and. And it's just amazing the, the talent that was was there and the coaches that would come in. I think Chuck Daly came and spoke to us at camp that week, and there was like 300 coaches there. And and I really felt like that was 
when you look at the brochure from Five Star, I don't know if you ever talked to anybody about Five Star, but uh, Howard Garfinkel ran it for years, and Will Klein, and uh, they ran it on the cheap, um, but they they had it like Robert Morris College. They had a couple different locations around the country, and they brought in really outstanding high school and college coaches like Billy Donovan was coaching there um, the week I was there and uh, Jerry Wainwright who was at Wake Forest at the time eventually ended up at uh, the head coach at DePaul and was at Marquette for a while he and I talked about and and Wainwright was like all about the weight room and we all thought he was on steroids because he walked around and talked like this and <laughs> two plates on there and benching. <laughs> But it was it was wild to see all these coaches like the best in the country, and you were getting an outstanding basketball education. All the top like jumping Joe Dooley was how we knew him. He went to South Carolina. Was he the coach at Florida Gulf Coast now? He so, he was a he was a college counselor there, uh, and so I wanted my kid, my son, my older son, when he played basketball. I'm like, I want you to have the five star experience because it was awesome, and so. Yeah. Um, I took him to, and George Mirasan's son came with us. Actually, George Mirasan's son and then, like, one of his AAU teammates flew into Louisville, and I, I drove down and picked them up and took them to the five that There was always, like, one week of five-star that was really good. So I called up the five-star people. I'm like, what's the good week? And they said, go to Louisville camp. So I went to Louisville camp, and it wasn't what it once was because AAU basketball wrecked it. Right. And coaches – don't come to five-star like they used to. And that's why all the kids would go there to get seen by the coaches, but all the coaches, and it was a unique opportunity for the coaches to work with the kids and get a feel for their games and see how coachable they were and stuff. And it was such a racket. Bill Raftery had a broadcasting camp that took place during five-star. And, you know, these Jewish kids from the city would pay him who knows how much money to sit down at like center court for our games at five star and broadcast the games into a cassette tape. And then I don't know if Bill claimed he'd listen to the tapes and gave him notes or whatever he did, but it was kind of funny. Um, and I, I called him on that later when he was calling the games in New Jersey for us. And he just, you know, it was, it was a fun time and it was, it was an amazing environment. I wish the NCAA controls all that. So if they wanted it to go back to that, and I think it would be better like that, they can do that in a heartbeat. All they got to do is snap their fingers and, tell coaches where they're allowed to recruit and, and, you know, five-star or a camp like five-star could come back to national prominence again. And, and the game would be better for it because man, you had some of the top college players in the country work in those camps and you had all the top high school and college coaches work in those camps and watching those camps. And, and it was phenomenal. Yeah. And, yeah. They're, they're, those are, those are definitely great camps. A, a lot of great basketball minds there. And you know, you got to play against a lot of great players through AAU, it sounds like. But I want to ask about uh, somebody that you played with at Marquette, and that's William Gates. Um, because I remember Hoop Dreams is such a popular documentary. It really still is, uh, but especially growing up. Uh, was it a big deal when he arrived at Marquette? I mean, were you guys like a little bit starstruck? Or, I mean, did you guys just treat him and, you know, normal? Yeah, you know, it's funny because Will was my teammate at Five Star the week I was out there. And he was just coming off his knee surgery. He had blown his knee out, and he wasn't didn't have the same explosiveness that he had before that. Um, so I knew Will, and it was it was great that we were able to recruit him. And it was ironically enough, he went to St. Joe's, where my um, I called her my called her my aunt, but she was 
some technical way. She was like a second cousin or something. She was one of his teachers and she was in the movie. Uh, Mrs. Zare. She was one of his teachers. And uh, so I don't think we were really starstruck because it was, it was kind of just one of those things like Joan Howard and I knew each other when we got to the bullets and, and I think it was more relief for Will that he had some familiar faces because Damon played in, at five star the same week as me. And so Damon and I knew Will and, and uh, the cameras were still rolling because they were kind of making a TV show out of it. Right. And so the cameras were around campus when Will got married, they were there. Um, they filmed a lot. They got a lot of footage and I made absolutely zero cuts. <laughs> I, I got, maybe on the TV show, they, they showed me somewhere, but you know, I'm watching the movie. I'm like, yeah, my aunt, you know, my aunt, uh, Mrs. Zare got in there, but I didn't, I didn't make the cut. So that's all right. It, it was, it was a neat thing to see them do that. And, and now, I mean, that, you know, ESPN should give them royalties for their 30 for 30s and stuff because that was kind of the original sports documentary that really piqued everybody's interest. And, you know, now people, we should do that. We can do that about anything. We can do that about Ultimate Frisbee. We can do, you know, so now they do them all over the place. And and I remember uh, Tommy Lee talking about it with uh, um, Behind the Music on VH1. And... You know, Motley Crue is a big, as big a train wreck as anybody. Um, and he's like, I, I love watching it just because I love the train wreck experience of watching everybody else's lives, you know, <laughs> blow up in front of them. And, and I think there's some of that with sports, even if, if, you know, people don't have their lives blow up when you're in sports, at some point, your, your competitive experience blows up in front of you and you lose the big game or you get knocked out of the tournament or, or you have a, catastrophic injury and, and I don't know if people enjoy the injuries but but they like seeing the losing you know that that's a, that appeals to viewers and and the struggles and the adversity the uh agony of defeat as ABC used to call it on yeah. wide world of sports yeah. of course right yeah and uh your college career is fantastic uh your senior year defensive player of the year award and the great midwest player of the year um, you're the school's all-time winning shot blocker, and it's really not even close. You have 399 second place as your teammate, Amal McCaskill, with 175. Um, you guys must have been a nightmare to go up against in the paint. And in the tournament your senior year, you take care of Louisiana and a great Kentucky team fairly easy. Um, did you, How do you like your chances to make a Final Four run going up against that Duke team? Because I feel like if you guys shot a little higher than I think it's like 32%, you probably could have won that game. We, we thought we had a really good team that year. And we thought if we could have got past Duke, we could have handled um, Purdue because they had Glenn Robinson and, and Link Darner. And, and we thought we, we had, a, you know, the right team. And Kevin O'Neill did a fantastic job of assembling – solid players and depth at every position and and I've never been a good evaluator of how talent translates from college to the NBA but I mean, we had three NBA guys on that team we had myself and Amal McCaskill and Chris Crawford was on there as a freshman and we had not only Marquette's all-time leader in assists with Tony Miller but he's still in the top 10 in the NCAA all-time in assists and one of the reasons he was is because he was surrounded by a bunch of guys who were career 50-plus field goal percentage guys. Um, you know, Maul was and, and Ron Curry and Damon and myself. And, and we had a lot of high-percentage shooters. We just didn't shoot a high-percentage game against Duke. And uh, 
And I think Ronnie Eford probably mouthed off to Grant Hill a little bit too much because we had him at the half. <laughs> and they didn't have a lot of life in him. And then Grant kind of woke up in the second half, and it was a different game. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, we, we liked that team. We, we were confident against Kentucky. Um, they had Roderick Rhodes and uh, Tony Delk on that team. Tony Delk, Walter McCarty, I think, was on that team. And uh, who was the guy that was a coach at Oklahoma State? Travis. What's his name? Oh, uh, short white guy. You know what I'm talking about. I know exactly who you're talking about, but I can't think of his name either. <laughs> yeah. So they had, they had a good, good team, but, I mean, their whole thing was we're just going to press you for 40 minutes and you're going to turn it over so many times that you're not going to be able to handle it. And Tony Miller, um, we, we had a guy on our team at Marquette my freshman year who fell asleep. Had, had, had numerous transgressions, but he fell asleep during a film session before our game at Kansas. And Kevin O'Neill put him on the next plane home with the trainer. After He's like, told the trainer, tape everybody's ankles and then get on the plane and get home with them. And that was the end of that guy. Um, and so we didn't have a point guard my freshman year. My roommate was forced to play point guard. And we just got annihilated because we, we had a gauntlet of a schedule. We played at Duke. We played at Kansas, at NC State, at Michigan. I mean, we were just getting beat up left and right. Um, and then uh, Coach is like, I'm never going to be shorthanded at point guard again. He recruited Tony Miller, who went to the same high school as Desmond Howard. And he might have been a quarterback on, on a state team that Desmond Howard was on that won the state championship. Whatever it was, he uh, stopped. He, he won a state championship in football as quarterback and was getting recruited heavily by everybody. Nobody cared about him in basketball that much. Kevin O'Neill did. And he, I think he stopped playing football his, after his junior year so he could focus on winning a state championship in basketball, and he did it. And there weren't a lot of schools that were recruiting Tony, but Kevin really believed in him and brought him in. And Tony was the key to that Kentucky game because he didn't turn it over. And they threw as many guys at him as they wanted to. And our, our whole game plan was if we can just get the ball in balance to Tony and everybody clear out, Tony can break their press by himself. And he did. Um, and he was a phenomenal point guard. Played, um, I can't remember if it was his freshman year or his sophomore year, but played most of that year. You, you can tell by looking at his three-point numbers because they were horrible that year. Um, he played most of that year with a broken wrist. and he would like, they would cast it up in a plaster cast after the games and then he'd have him take it off before the next game and lift his way through the season like that. And, and I, I had a break, I had a a fracture in my wrist. I think it was during my freshman year and, but it was my left hand. So I wasn't shooting with it. And yeah, I just, I got it cast as soon as the season was over and I'm just a big guy. So I can still block shots and tip stuff with my right hand. But yeah, to, to be a point guard who has to handle the ball and dribble it, and it was shooting hand. I don't know how you did that for the second half of that season. Just probably will. <laughs> He's a tough football player. Yeah, yeah tough. tough football player. That's, that's what he does. And he ended up working as an assistant for Kevin O'Neill at, at uh, USC when coach was coaching there. And, and I guess the way it works in college basketball, you kind of hit your coaching wagon to – somebody and if they're working then you're working if they're not then you're not unless you make some more friends and so I think Tony would go back to coaching in college if he if he got an opportunity he's a great floor leader and knows the game really well so if anybody's watching they're looking for a solid assistant Tony Miller's your guy 
There you go. Good plug there for sure. Hey, Jim, can you talk to us about um, the draft, the draft process, what you went through, um, things like that to get to, you know, get into the NBA? So first thing, I don't know if it's the first thing, but I, I had to hire an agent. Um, Kevin O'Neill didn't have a ton of experience with guys going pro. Sean Elliott obviously went pro when he was at Arizona and Kerr and Judd and Tolbert and Brian. And, and so he contacted some people there and they referred an agent for me. And then Kevin was best friends with Bob Huggins at Cincinnati. <clears throat> and uh, Bo Ellis brought his agent in, and then um, Bob Huggins recommended Ron Grinker, who was his agent, because at the time, it's technically still supposed to be that way. You're only supposed to be able to represent NBA players and college coaches or um, NBA coaches and college coaches. You're not supposed to be able to represent management and players which would be coaches and players in the NBA. But I think guys like Warren Legary still do it and somehow skirt the rules by saying, I'm not his agent, I'm just an advisor or something like that. Yeah, the famous advisor. So I interviewed a bunch of different guys, and some of them wanted me to go to Europe because um, they got 10% of my contract there and only 4% of an NBA contract. And, and Mr. Grinker was the most straight shooter of the whole bunch. He said, um, you know, ask, ask all these guys if they couldn't represent you and nobody from their firm and you were their son, who would, who would they say you should call to represent you? And he said, I'll tell you right now, there's a guy working for David Falk at the time he was, Bill Strickland. He said he's a, he's a good, honest man and he'll, he'll do you well. And I think he ended, um, Bill Strickland ended up representing Chris Weber and some other high-profile guys, but he told me to call up Bill Strickland. And he said, see what kind of answer these other guys give you. And they were giving me answers like, this guy's really good, but he only does football players, or that guy's really good, but he's retired. You know, they, they knew it was nobody that was going to represent, or like, yeah, David Falk should represent you. It's like, yeah, he's too busy making money on Jordan. He's not going to represent second-round Jim McElvain. So uh, <laughs> I ended up hiring Mr. Grinker, and he turned out to be the most fantastic sports agent ever. And he looked after his guys in a way I don't think other agents did. He wouldn't hire a guy. He looked at it as he was hiring them, not just they were hiring him. If he couldn't trust them to stay in his house while he was out of town with his wife and two daughters, which eliminated a lot of guys from consideration. And there were times when we did stay at his house. And he had his own pre-training um, camp camp in Cincinnati where he would bring down all of his clients and the veterans who had been in the NBA for a long time. And he had guys like Brad Lowhouse and Danny Mannion and Kevin Gamble and Cornbread Maxwell. And, um, they would kind of run a training camp for all the younger guys and we'd all get each other into shape and play pickup games and do drills. And so by the time, it, and it was right before training camp. So you were like fit as a fiddle and dialed in and ready to go. And you get to training camp and you're, a week ahead of everybody that shows up at camp that tried to do it on their own. Um, and because we were in Cincinnati, you know, we'd rotate around. We'd play pickup games at Xavier and pickup games at UC. And, and uh, so he was, he was an outstanding agent and knew the game very well. He actually um, 
graduated from Cincinnati and, and did some work for Oscar Robertson back in the day. And, uh, he, he was one of the, the old school guys and, uh, knew the salary cap really well. Um, and he told me if, if I don't make it in the draft and I don't get on with the team, he doesn't want me to go to Europe. I could make more money there. He could make more money there, but when it comes time to call a player up, you're more likely to get called up from the CBA. So he had me play in the CBA and, and nobody else were giving me advice like that. You know, they were all about cash grab. And, and so uh, I got drafted in the second round. I, I worked out for a bunch of teams. Um, anybody that wanted me to work out, I'd go work out. I wasn't blowing anybody off. And I worked out against PJ Brown in New Jersey or Golden State, maybe both places. Eric Mobley, I worked out against at Golden State. Um, I worked out in Miami because that's where I was having dinner. It was wild in Coconut Grove with Pat Riley and um, the guys, everybody. No, it wasn't Pat Riley. It was uh, um, Kevin, Kevin Lowry was the coach down there. Kevin Lowry and um, Chris, I can't remember his name, was the GM. And like Sylvester Stallone and Bridget Nielsen walked into the restaurant. And they were having dinner. and. And all we were talking about was OJ because OJ had just gotten, you know, the Bronco chase was that day. Yeah. I worked out in Cleveland. I worked out for the Bucks and Mike. Um, oh, what's, what's, what was the coach's name? Dunleavy. Old, Dunleavy. Dunleavy. Yeah. He, he worked guys out. And at that time he was like playing one-on-one -on -one against guys and beating most of them. Really? Um, yeah. Yeah, Glenn Robinson, I think, was the first guy that actually beat him in the workout. <laughs> wow. And, uh, and I worked out I worked out for the Celtics. I know I worked out for the Cavs, Miami, Golden State, Milwaukee, Portland. I had a fantastic workout in Portland. They said if um, Aaron McKee's not available, they were going to draft me. And then Aaron McKee was available, and they drafted him. Um, but, yeah, I went everywhere. Don Nelson, um, when he took me out to dinner in – in uh, San Francisco or wherever we were. Eric Mobley was out there working out and, and he brought in some European guy and he put us through our paces. And so I got in the car and Eric got in the car and Don looked at me, he pointed at me and said, you are in terrible shape. <laughs> I'm like, oh. And they looked in the rear view mirror at Eric Mobley and said, you are in even worse shape. <laughs> I'm like, oh, <laughs> I hope this guy doesn't draft. And that was after our workout. And I got, I'm probably not getting drafted by this guy. And then I, then right after that, I went to Portland and had like the workout of a lifetime. They're like, shoot some threes. I'm like, I've never really shot threes. Well, I'll just try them. And I was just drilling threes from everywhere <laughs> at, on the Nike campus. And, and they were, yeah, that was, that was Jim Paxson worked me out up there. Um, and so then I didn't go to the draft in New York because I didn't think I was going to be drafted in the first round. I didn't want to be like Darren Morningstar and come out of the grandstands, you know, second from the end in the second round and get up on stage. So I stayed in, in Milwaukee in case the Bucks drafted me. They had the 18th pick and they, had, they invited me to go down there. But at that point, they had never drafted guys from Wisconsin. They passed on Latrell Sprewell and Tony Smith and Doc Rivers and and, and a bunch of guys with Milwaukee ties and Wisconsin ties that Terry Porter that they could have drafted and, and didn't. So I'm like, well, I'm close. I, I was, my, my agent had me get two hotel rooms in Waukesha 
adjoining so I could have two phone lines because that's how it worked back then. Nobody had cell phones. Right. And if the Bucks drafted me, I could take a drive 15, 20 minutes and be down at the Bradley Center for a press conference. If they didn't, I'll be glad I was in a hotel out in Waukesha and not downtown. <laughs> so we go through the draft, and, and he's on the phone with me in the room, and we're just watching the whole draft. And, and I remember we, we got New York Knicks called me up. They had the last two picks in the first round. They drafted Charlie Ward and, and Monty Williams. And they wanted me to come in the morning of the draft and work out. And my agent's like, no, don't even bother. Because he was looking at rosters. He's like, they're full of big guys, and, and it would be hard for you to make that roster. <clears throat> and so he thought I would be drafted higher than I was. And then once we got out of the first round, he's like, well, I have no idea what's going to happen now. And I'm like, what? I was in a panic. You know? <laughs> I'm like, this guy has guided me through everything and done such a great job. And now he's like, has no idea what's going to happen. And then the bullets picked me up. And he's like, oh, bullets are a fantastic situation for you. I'm like, really? And, and he, like, he knew the rosters. He knew the salary caps and everything. And he's like, they've got Kevin Duckworth and George Marison. And Kevin Duckworth is at the end of his career. He's, he's, his health is not good. He's missed a lot of games with injury. He's overweight. There's a weight clause in his contract. And he's at odds with team management. And George Marison was at the beginning of his career, but he's seven foot seven and his body will never hold together. And, and so, you know, they, they can't afford to just have a roster with just those two guys for the five spots. So you'll make that team. And uh, so, and he's, and also Derek Smith was an assistant coach and um, Derek Smith was one of Mr. Grinker's clients when he was a player and thought the world of him. And he's like, Derek Smith is going to be your older brother. And he was. And for two years, he was, he was my best friend and my older brother on that team and taught me tons about the NBA. And I miss him dearly to this day. And I think about him a lot. Um, but it was, it was, it was great for me to get to that situation because it was, it was like a security blanket to have Derek there working with me all the time and building my confidence. Cause he knew so much of being successful and making it in the NBA is, having confidence and, and not just yourself, but your teammates having confidence in you. And, um, and so he helped instill confidence in my teammates that whatever else was going on, Jim's got your back on defense. And that's, that's a nice thing to, for guys in the league. You know, they, they want to know that somebody's going to cover up for their mistakes on the perimeter if, if they need it. Um, so I went out there and played in the uh, summer league up in Westchester, New York. And Anthony Tucker was my roommate who had played at um, – he was undrafted. He had played at uh, Wake Forest for Bob Stack, who was one of the assistant coaches. <clears throat> and I, I, we played a game in Philly. We practiced in, in, at Bowie State in a gym that Bowie State wouldn't use. It was so horrible. And then we played a, a game against some local Philly uh, college basketball players or alumni or something in Philadelphia. I had a really good game there. And then literally I went in the locker room at halftime and sat down and my back went out. I'm like, Ooh, and I didn't have a contract or anything. And I'm like, I can't tell anybody. My back went out. It was killing me. And so I didn't even tell my agent that my back was bothering me. The only person I knew was Tucker because he was my roommate. And so I went up and I played the whole summer league with a bad back. 
and just downplayed it. I'm like, I need some ice for my knees. And they give me ice for my knees. And then I, as soon as I got back to my room, I put it on my back. And, and I was like laying on the edge of the bed, trying to get some traction. And Tucker's like, you got to tell somebody. I'm like, I can't tell anybody. I don't want anybody to think I'm injury prone, you know? And so at that time, when, when you're undrafted or when you're drafted, but with no contract, you don't want anybody to give you a reason not to, to bring you on. So um, I played well enough in the summer league that they, off, they decided to offer me a deal. And they offered me a three-year contract, and uh, and it was guaranteed, I think, for all three years. But it started at league minimum and went up a little bit after that. And my agent turned it down. I'm like, "What? Three years? I could, that's pension. I could be in the pension." <laughs> like, no, 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 Jim. Let me explain what's going on here. And he explained it really well. He's like, you know, after your first contract, you're a restricted free agent, which means at, at the time, I don't know if the rules have changed, which means you can sign with another team, but you, your original team gets an opportunity to match that and bring you back. And then after you've gone through two contracts, then you can become an unrestricted free agent and anybody in the league can, can hire you or offer you a contract and you can go anywhere you want. And he said, after your second year in the league, there's a bunch of salary cap space that's going to come open because a bunch of contracts are going to be up and there's going to be multiple teams and lots of money out there. So you, the last thing you want to do is tie yourself into a three-year deal near league minimum. And I'm like, okay, I trust you. So he, he got me a deal for one year guaranteed at $200,000. And then I played well enough that year that um, Kevin McHale liked me and wanted me to come to the Timberwolves and um, had me come up and work me out. And he wanted me to kind of be a, like a positive influence. And he wanted, because Kevin Garnett was going to come in. They were going to draft him. Everybody knew it. And uh, he just he wanted, you know, Kevin played in the league, so or you know, Mikhail played in the league, so he knew what it was like, and he he knew I was a good person, and I wasn't gonna like drag Kevin Garnett to strip clubs and <laughs> craziness. <clears throat> so he wanted me there, as he offered me a deal, and they tried to they set up the deal. They offered me one year at five twenty five because that's what my agent wanted, only a one year deal, so I could be an unrestricted free agent, and then they put some like they call them poison pills or whatever in there. They, they promised me in the contract an indoor parking space at the arena because the bullets at the cap center or the U S air arena, um, they didn't, they allegedly didn't have space indoors to park everybody's vehicle. And so you had to walk like half mile from the parking lot and, and, but they had enough room for Chris Weber and uh, Juwan Howard's cars or, you know, Scott Skiles and Juwan Howard's cars. And so they, they put that into the contract to, because they didn't think the bullets would match it. And then the bullets fought with the league about it for a couple of weeks and they got it taken out of there. And so they like right at the end of training camp at the, on the last day, they could match my contract. They matched it and brought me back to Washington for a second year. And, uh, and that at that point I had shin splints because I, I was, you know, I wasn't under contract and I couldn't work out with the team. So I was in Cincinnati doing step aerobics on concrete and got shin splints from doing step aerobics on concrete. And so I battled shin splints for like the first month of the season as I was, because I was, you know, I didn't want to come in out of shape. And my first year I, I was playing pickup before training camp and, and uh, rolled my ankle on Manute Bull's foot and so I spent most of the training camp my first year in a, in a cast, in a walking boot. And so it, my first two training camps were a struggle for me a little bit. But that, that's kind of the draft process for me in a, in a long-winded way, I guess. Yeah. 
And uh, are the rookie stories true? Did you ever have to go like carry Scott Skiles' luggage, or are you guys a young enough team where you didn't have to really deal with any of that? I, I was Scott Skiles' uh, rookie, so <laughs> yeah. Um, my job was to have a deck of cards for him on, on every trip, and I would bring newspapers in for him at, at the practice facility, and uh, I had to be a sacrificial lamb for a card game because <clears throat> Scott played cards on the team playing all the time with other guys. And, and uh, he's like, come on, Rook, let's get some of that per diem in the pot. And, <laughs> and so I, I didn't gamble at all, but I, I said, here's what I'll do. You don't want my, my per diem on this, this trip to Boston. You want my per diem on a West Coast trip later in the season. And fortunately, well, fortunately or unfortunately, Skiles got injured by that point in the season, so he wasn't on that road trip, so I didn't have to give up my – There you uh, go. 10 days of per diem, which at the time was probably like six, 700 bucks. Um, and in between, I think it was the card game that they played. And uh, there was that team, there's times when the pot got over a thousand bucks. And that seemed like an awful lot for me at $200,000 a year um, as a rookie to be wagering. And, and I was, I was, Along with Anthony Tucker, we were the last two guys in the NBA who were roommates on the road. Yeah. Nobody else at that point were roommates. And that was another thing my, you know, my agent, Mr. Grinker, told me. He said, uh, when you get on with a team, the um, collective bargaining agreement says, teams will provide a complimentary room for each player on the road based on double occupancy. <clears throat> so nobody wants a roommate in the NBA because, you know, they're NBA players. They want their own room for – you know, as Bernie Mac would say, their uh, social, uh, in, you know, engagements. And and so I was telling Tucker this when we were in summer league, and I said, so all you got to do, because Tucker didn't think he'd make the bullets. He thought he'd go somewhere else and try to make a roster. Just request a roommate, and nobody else on the team will request a roommate. So you might get stuck with a room with double beds all season long, but you won't pay for it. And, and everybody has to pay for their own room has to pay like five or ten grand a year. So for me, the team, I made the team. We both requested roommates and they gave each other us as roommates. So we were roommates the whole rookie year. And like Mitchell Butler or Doug Overton would come grab a puck to go out for dinner or go out to club or something. Or, and they'd see me and they were like, Jim, what are you doing in here? My room too. And they're like, you guys are roommates? Like, yeah, yeah, we're roommates. And they're like, are you, not those guys, but some guys are like, are you gay? Like, what do you mean? Are we gay? No, we're not gay. We're just roommates. Why don't you have your own room? Like, cause I don't want to pay $10,000 and he doesn't want to pay $10,000. And then, and then the look on their faces changed. Like it costs $10,000 a year to have your own room. I'm like, yes, it does. And none, none of them, they had their own social agendas that they didn't want to get messed up with a roommate. Um, they didn't, it wasn't that important to them, but, you could tell they got stung a little bit by the realization they're paying $10,000 a year to have their own room. And, and Tucker and I saved that money our rookie year by, by having each other as roommates. Yeah. yeah. Smart. And, uh, you know, I, I always thought you're really underrated rim protector. Uh, the numbers don't lie. I mean, you played 80 games in one of your seasons in Washington in less than 15 minutes and still averaged two blocks. Um, but if I'm an NBA executive and I see a player at that production, I'm going to offer a big contract. Um, Seattle didn't have a rim protector when, when they signed you. Uh, I mean, Sam Perkins wasn't going to block a lot of shots at that point. 
Um, could you maybe walk us through those contract negotiations? Because I feel like it's a big deal at the time, but I also feel that you're really deserving of it because I would have easily given I, – I feel like you were the missing piece to a puzzle for a championship contender to that Sonics team. I feel like they needed a shot blocker. And that's what they thought too. And actually they had Irvin Johnson, who was a pretty good shot blocker in his own right. Um, but I guess, you know, they – they weren't happy with him enough to keep him, and he ended up signing with Denver and got a pretty good deal out of them. Um, a lot of the context around my contract is absent from a lot of the stories you'll see on the internet. Um, you know, I, I explained to you guys earlier how my agent knew the free agent opportunity was going to be great after my second year, so he made sure I was a free agent unrestricted when there were a lot of guys that were in my draft class who were signing, you know, max deals or, you know, three or five year deals and they missed that opportunity. They maybe got it later in their careers, but um, my agent timed it right for me. And, and it wasn't just the, the teams, but it was knowing the, the positions in those teams and, you know, these teams are going to need centers. So, um, you know, his, his prediction was kind of wrong on Kevin Duckworth and, um, George Mirasan's body's not holding up. Duckworth struggled with injury and uh, didn't end up coming back, I think, my second year. But uh, George was surprisingly resilient and played outstanding. In fact, I think he got most improved player uh, maybe my second year. And he played heavy minutes until the end of my second season in Washington. And then he went down with an injury. And Kornheiser and Wilbon were still doing local DC television at the time they had a sports show and, and they called it the curse of the belay because we had Mark Price on that team and Robert Pack and Chris Weber and we had you know Calvert Chain all these good players and and Kornheiser says the curse of the belay no matter how many good players come on that team something's going to happen and those guys aren't going to make the playoffs and they're not going to do that and and yeah I don't think it was a curse but um, at the end of that second season we we had you had to you had to dress eight guys um to start the game and we had guys dressing the eighth guy was dressing but was injured and unable to play and we had filled up our our roster with 10 day guys and brought a bunch of people in just trying to keep people healthy we couldn't keep people healthy on that team and my next two years in seattle was amazing we had injured guys there too but it was amazing how healthy injured guys could stay when you're on a team that's winning 60 games a season. And not that anybody on the bullets was a faker, but I think there's just, you know, a mindset or mentality. Like I got to figure out a way to play. Now like Chris Weber dislocated his shoulder. There's no way Chris Weber's going to play. And we had stuff like that, you know, guys were breaking fingers or whatever. And George had some legitimate injuries. And, but the bottom line was it wasn't even 10 games and maybe the last seven games of my second season. Um, I got to play heavy minutes. Like, 30 plus minutes a night and I averaged almost a double double and I had almost a triple double against the Bulls in that final game when they had 72 wins and that small pocket of seven games showed enough NBA executives what I was capable of if if I got the minutes that there were a lot of people that wanted me um Houston really wanted me to come down there because they thought Hakeem was not going to be at the end of his career, but, you know, they wanted him to groom me and make me a better player while he was still at the top of his game and have a succession plan. So it was a seven-year max deal that everybody's talking about. Um, Boston really wanted me to come to Boston, but they didn't have any cap room. Um, 
Seattle was obviously very interested. Uh, Cleveland offered me more money than anybody because Wayne Embry really liked me. I had a great workout in um, Cleveland and Wayne's from Milwaukee and I got to know him a little bit uh, because my agent represented Tyrone Hill who was playing for the Cavs and Craig Elo who played for the Cavs and Cleveland offered me more than anybody but I hated Mike Fratello's system is slow down and, and you look out west and you see George Carl and they're running gun and it's you know Peyton and Kemp and they're up and down the court and they got such a great supporting cast with Detlef Schrempf and Hersey Hawkins and and Dale Ellis and I mean, all these phenomenal players, and they were so close to winning a championship. And, and then, you know, the Bullets ended up – they were worried. They, lost, they thought they lost Juwan Howard to the Miami Heat. He had signed a deal that later got voided. Brent Price jumped ship and went to Houston. And guys were leaving left and right. They were afraid they weren't going to re-sign anybody. They came in right away with a, a three-year deal at like a million, a million and a half, two million. And they said that was the best deal they could offer me. And and there was going to be no negotiation. I think Wes Unseld was working that deal, and my agent said, "Then then we're done. We have nothing to talk about because that's not even a starter for us." And yeah. uh, were you getting those? So when you got those deals, Jim, like the deal from uh, from Wes, were you already getting the deals from the other teams like Houston? Oh yeah. So you yeah. knew you're like, oh yeah, okay, sure, a million and a half, all so I can give me, and. You know, Seattle's going to offer me thirty-six million for six years, right? Well, um, my agent was saying a seven-year deal to everybody. Okay. He wanted because that was the max at the time. And there were teams that were like, "Yeah, we can do seven years." And uh, I later caught up with Adam Keith and shook his hand and thanked him because I felt like he was the guy that was responsible for me getting the numbers that I got because my agent kind of used the um, South Park, you know. Chewbacca defense, Johnny Cochran. <laughs> and he said, you know, Adam Keith's only a power forward. There's a bunch of power forwards in the league. Look how much the Utah Jazz paid Adam Keith. Jim McElvain's a center. Look what the average, you know, salary is for a starting center in the NBA. This, is, this, this isn't unreasonable. This is, you know, middle of the pack here for this guy. If he's going to be your starting center and, and um, a bunch of teams bought into it and said, yeah, we agree. And, and eventually Washington came back and, and actually beat Cleveland with their offer. But by that point, I was like, I don't care if Seattle's the third highest offer. They almost won a championship last year. They're really close. I want to go out there and play for George Carl. And, and, and you know, there's no state income tax. And the Ackerley family who owned the team at the time had a great reputation as NBA owners, which became painfully apparent after two years in Washington. And somewhere in the archives, I can't remember which Washington paper did an expose on how the bullets were being run at the time. But by the time they got to me and interviewed me, they, they were just fact-checking what everybody else had already told them about how poorly the organization was run and all the corners that were cut and how they, the team tried to get us to, like, pay the managers to do their jobs. And, and this, you know, trainer was hoarding furniture and the <laughs> – that he would, he, he, had the, the manager owned rental properties that he would rent to guys on non guaranteed contracts or 10 day contracts, and then he'd rent them furniture that was maybe stolen from other players who had gotten traded and moved. Wow. And it was like, but that was just, you know, tip of the iceberg. You know, we, yeah, it was, it was night and day going from Washington to Seattle where they treated you first class in every way and, and it compelled you to really, I mean, you always want to give a first class effort, but, 
any way you could go above and beyond for the Ackerley family and the city of Seattle and those fans, you wanted to do it. And, and you always felt allegiance to the fans in whatever city you were in. But man, some of the stuff we did in Washington, I think we were supposed to stay at a hotel that had 24 hour room service every time we went on the road. But I think the owner's brother or somebody owned a Ramada Inn at the airport in Portland. So that's where we stayed. And it was 45 minutes to the arena and there was no room service and planes woke you up at five in the morning. And, and uh, we were taking charter flights or commercial flights in the preseason. They chartered flights. And like when Scott Skiles came up from Orlando, Susan O'Malley came to Scott and said, what can we do to, make things more like they are in Orlando. Cause at the time they had Shaq and Penny and Nick Anderson. They were really good. And Scott's like, well, you can get rid of these garbage U S air charter flights. Cause they <laughs> chartered a, a regular U S air, uh, seven thirty seven or whatever had eight first class seats. So the way it's supposed to work is the guys on the team with the most seniority got the first class seats. Well, as it turns out, Scott Skiles was one of the guys with the most seniority. He's like, I'm not sitting in a first class seat. While Jim McElvain and George Mirasan, 14 feet, 14 and a half feet of centers are going to sit back and coach. So I'm going to sit in the coach seats. And it, there weren't enough seats. And so we just let the coaches sit in the eight first class seats. And we just pushed down rows and coach. And we flew in the coach section and ate chicken and mushroom sauce meals, which was the standard U.S. Air meal for wow. every flight oh, the first cool. year. And, and I was just, you know par for the course with that kind of stuff and then you get to Seattle they've got their own team plane and they serve you good food that's healthy and you know it just it was you know the practice facility was top-notch we literally practiced in the gym at Bowie State that Bowie State would no longer use ceiling tiles falling down no air conditioning they had temporary air conditioners that would, air conditioners that would blow like a a tube of cold air into one spot on the court that you'd run by as you're running up and down the court and and hard concrete floor underneath and and you go to these other places like charlotte because of larry johnson and uh those guys they they're trying to prolong their careers their practice court felt like a trampoline and <laughs> jump on that thing it was so soft and cushioned from underneath because they just wanted to keep the, the wear and tear down on him and alonzo and they knew they had bad knees you know this is great stuff that you're giving us jim because it's stuff that a lot of the casual fans don't understand, which is really cool. And it shows you just, it's like what Cuban did with, with uh, the Mavericks where he just made everything first class. And, and, and like you yeah. said, those points, if everything's first, I mean, think about this way. You didn't have a parking space. You know what I mean? Like the arena, you know what I mean? If, if the fans know yeah. that or not know that it's like, thank God. And you it's have raining and it's snowing and right. you're hiking through that and, and watching two of your teammates at least drive out in their cars and like, all right. Yeah. That's not making you happy. (laughs) That's not making you happy. Every other, every other arena you go to, it's like, come on, Madison square gardens in the middle of the city. There's no parking anywhere in this town, but all these cars can fit that arena and we can't, there's fire code issues and and Landover. We can't fit all the cars in our arena. And just, you know, little things like that. There, there was bird poop that was laminated onto the basketball court at the U.S. Air Arena. Wow. Because, because they stacked the, the squares up, right, and they, they stored them, and there was pigeons that lived inside the arena and would go around, they'd poop on those, and it was always <laughs> the same ones that were on top, and they, like, never they, – they'd wipe them down because there was always fresh bird poop whenever they set up the court, and I'm 
and, and we're out there stretching, so we get an up-close look at it. And I don't know if it's Tim Legler or somebody looked at it, it's like scratching. I was like, you can't scratch this off. It's They, they actually put varnish or whatever seal <laughs> over the top of this bird boot. And, and we, had, we had a game where um, we had to call the game because there's a temperature shift and there's ice underneath the court. And it happened once at the Palace in Detroit. The same season, we had two games postponed because of weather. And we had a game in, in Maryland where there's just water weeping up through the bottom of the court and they dry it off. And you it was like somebody poured water all over the court. You could ice skate across it. Weird. That was, that was just the facility. In the locker room, we shared the training room with the Washington Capitals. And when they, they showed Juwan and I in the locker room during our draft um, press conference, I looked at Juwan like Marquette's locker room was way better than this. He's like, you can believe Michigan's locker room was way better. Than this. We had like, you know, fencing in between the lockers like they do in high school. And the training room was shared. So if the, the Caps played a, a, a midday game or a noon game, and then we came in and played a night game, well, when the hockey players come in and out of the training room, they're wearing their skates or they're not wearing their skates and they got all the, the ice shavings all over their legs and they're just dropping them all over the floor. And they put fans in there to try to dry it up. But you walk in there in your socks and it's like somebody just dumped puddles of water all over the carpet and just squish, squish, squish. And then, then now your socks are soaking wet. You got to get new socks. And the equipment manager gives socks away, you know, trade so NBA logo socks to people for who knows what. And he doesn't want to give up extra socks. So it's like, you know, you know, like impossible to get socks. You got wet socks because you're sharing the training room with the hockey team. And it was a mess. I have one other question for you. Um, so you went to New Jersey after, and then you ended your career at 28. What made you um, end your career so young? Was it uh, injuries or was it just, you know, it just that was that for you? You just knew you had a certain point that you wanted to play basketball or, or what happened? I never really wanted to be one of those 20-year guys. I didn't know how long I was going to play. I loved Seattle, loved my teammates, loved the coaches. George Carl didn't love me. And I didn't pan out the way that anybody out there hoped I would. And no, through no fault of theirs. Um, I never, I never, you know, those 30 minutes a night, I saw those last seven games in Washington. I don't think I ever saw 30 minutes in any game in two years in Seattle. And I don't think George Carl ever wanted me to see that much time because he knew I'd start putting up good numbers. And, and so um, I got to New Jersey and John Nash was the GM who drafted me in Washington. And, George Mirasan was there, and as much as I, you know, didn't like New Jersey as much as I like Seattle, I liked the, the the people there. You know, the teammates. I had great teammates, um, and I liked the front office guys because they were they were fans of mine. Um, but I was tearing something or breaking something every year. I tore my rotator cuff and labrum um, in the strike shortened season when we were doing training camp before the season even started. I tried to play through like a couple dozen games. I just kept telling them it's getting worse. I can't sleep at night. I can't lay down flat in a bed. I'm sleeping in a chair at night because my shoulder's torn and, and we know it's torn. And we tried, you know, cortisone shots and nothing was working. And eventually I had to stop and, and get my shoulder cut. And every year I was, you know, at the end of the season, I was going in for surgery for something. So um, my last year I had, ruptured my left calf and partially tore my left Achilles. Um, 
and missed a bunch of the season. And I was a couple weeks away before from coming back before the season ended. And so I didn't get back that season and they waited for me. I think to I was going into Milwaukee and playing pickup games with Marquette and Lawrence Frank, who was an assistant for Kevin O'Neill at Marquette was an assistant at that point for the, for the Nets. So he people in Milwaukee and like, no, he's run up and down the court. He's playing fine. And, there's a story about Steve Stepanovich that he uh, he blew his knee out with his horses on his ranch in Missouri or something and didn't want to tell anybody and then came into training camp. And when they were doing easy running, warming up, he, like, grabbed his knee and said, oh, and he went down, and that was the end of his career. And so um, they wanted to make sure that I was healthy enough to play again. And when they saw that I was, they had already lost Jamie Fike. Um, who was a phenomenal rebounder and a really good player. I like him a lot. Um, he had bone spurs in his feet that were super painful. And he tried to play with them until he couldn't anymore. And they said, look, some of these spurs are behind your Achilles. And if we cut your Achilles, you may never play again. He's like, Doc, I can't play the way I'm playing now anymore. So you got to do it. And so they cut his Achilles and he never played again. Um, so they were worried they'd bring me back. I'd get into training camp and – be fine for a day, a week, a month, half a season. And then I'd rupture my Achilles and never play again. So uh, rather than have that happen, Rod Thorne was a new GM and Byron Scott was a new coach. They wanted to go in a different direction. And September 10th, 2001, they brought me in and offered me a buyout and offered to pay me like two thirds of what they owed me over four years instead of two years that I had left. And they said, you know, you're, you're a good guy. We want to treat you the right way and do, the, do right by it. But um, if you don't want that, you know, you'll go from this meeting out of the court and we'll make your life miserable for the next two years trying to get you out of that deal. And I said, I'll take the deal. And Bill Strickland was my agent at that point because my first agent, Ron Grinker, had passed away. And he just kind of held my hand through the signing process and signed all the documents. And the next day, the world changed and they hit the Twin Towers. Yeah, that changed everything. Yeah, I lost people in my neighborhood in New Jersey who worked over there, and it was it was weird. It was it was a really bizarre time, and it was a bizarre way to transition out of a career to be in the midst of that. And I spent several months there after I I volunteered for the Red Cross over at Brooklyn Heights, doing you know just a lot of database work for them because I wasn't playing anymore, and I'd I had already I'd done my training for logistics and some other stuff. So I was certified to volunteer for the Red Cross in some different ways. And so I, I did that. And actually Pat Croce, who was uh, the owner of the uh, Philadelphia 76ers in the database work I was doing in Brooklyn Heights, his name showed up. He was volunteering for the Red Cross um, doing volunteer work as well. So that was kind of cool to see that. And he didn't make a big deal out of that as much as he liked publicity. He just went in and helped out the Red Cross and, and you know, that was kind of the dawn of the internet and people were, were sending around garbage emails about how, um, you know, Ford donated this and Chevy donated this and Dodge donated this and none of these other automakers, you know, all these foreign automakers didn't do anything. And, and I said, look, you know, I, I worked in Brooklyn Heights and I know for a fact that BMW donated a bunch of X5 SUVs to the Red Cross and they had stickers all over them and they were in Brooklyn Heights. I know they gave support at least in that way but for this thing you know that was my introduction to the fake stuff that gets circulated around on the internet i'm like i know that's not true i was there i saw what was going on bmw was helping everywhere they could so 
Yeah, and, uh, Jim, um, I just want to ask you a couple quick lightning round questions uh, before we let you go. Um, just some quick answers here. Um, just a couple things you want to know about your career. Uh, what's your favorite memory from your Marquette playing days? If you had to pick one. Um, I think beating Kentucky to go to the Sweet 16 would have to be it. Okay. When, uh, when, I, when I came out of high school, Marquette was probably the fourth best Division One school in the state. UW-Milwaukee actually had a pretty good team that was winning 20-some games a year. And uh, the Bennets were up in Green Bay doing well. And, and UW-Madison wasn't doing very well, but they, Marquette was doing worse. So to be a part of that, to come in with Kevin O'Neill and get the program turned around and cap it off with a run of the Sweet 16, which Marquette hadn't probably done since the 70s, uh, that was pretty cool. And uh, who's the best teammate that you've ever had throughout your whole career? Um, I had a lot of great teammates, and a lot of them I still keep in touch with, George Mirasan being one of them. Um, I think the best teammate for me as a person might have been Detlef Schrempf because he personified to me what it meant to be a professional athlete, his approach to the game, his approach to his body, and how he took care of himself. And, you know, he's German, so he kind of cuts to the chase and, you know, has a no-nonsense attitude, just says what needs to be said and always was professional about the way he approached things. He, you know, he wouldn't go out and party. You know, he'd take care of his body. And I remember I got in there, and they, they were doing bench testing. And you, it wasn't 225 like the NFL, but how many times can you rep 185? And I'm like, well, what was the record last year? And, and like, they said, deadlift did 25. And so I went in, and I did like 26 and struggled to get 26. And then deadlift comes in. What did he do? <laughs> 26, boom, 32. I'm like, oh, you're kidding me. <laughs> and, and he ran a foundation, a Detlef Schramm Foundation, that raised probably about $30 million for the city of Seattle charities. Um, a bunch of different really good causes. And one of the frustrating things I see when, when people talk about the economic impact of a pro sports team on a city they never take into account the charitable giving um, that these athletes either give themselves or that they raise. And, you know, it's not inconsequential numbers when one guy from the Sonics helped raise more than $30 million for local charities. So um, I'd love to see Mr. Zimbalist and some of these other sports economists factor that into the equation when they talk about what the benefit really is of having a professional sports franchise in a city. Okay. And, uh, yeah, Detlef sounds like a professional for sure. And then um, who is the toughest cover that you've ever had? Just the one guy that you couldn't figure out? Hakeem Olajuwon, and nobody really could figure him out. Yeah. He, yeah. Uh, he was so skilled over either shoulder. Like guys like the Kimbe Mutombo or Buddha, James Edwards, you just force them over one shoulder and they're not even half the player they were over their other shoulder. But Hakeem was really good turning over his left or right shoulder. And not only was he good back to the basket, but if you felt like somebody like me, who was a shot blocker, was going to give him trouble and you have a hard time shooting over me because I had him by several inches, he'd pull me out on the floor. And he could put the ball on the floor and three, four dribbles, make great moves. And didn't matter if you sent a double team because he was a fantastic passer. And so I, I didn't feel like anybody in the league at that time had a more complete post game or offensive game as a five man than Hakeem. Yeah. And uh, this is my last lightning round question, but I know that you, uh, you're an analyst with Marquette basketball. Um, I used to be. 
Uh, not, not anymore. You're done. Uh, yeah. When I moved to Florida, I told them I had to stop unless they could figure out how I could broadcast games from my underwear in my living room. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That is awesome. But uh, during all your years of watching Marquette basketball, who's your favorite to watch? Um, Andrew Rousey, probably, because Duke fans have enjoyed having a lot of players over the years, and Steve Wojciechowski is one of them, that uh, teams, the opposing teams, absolutely hate that one guy on the team. And Marquette had a bunch of really solid players over the years, you know, Jimmy Butler and Jay Crowder and Travis and Steve Novak. But none of them really were hated that much by opposing teams' fans like Andrew Rousey because he carried a swagger with him. He was a trash talker, and he backed it up, and he just stabbed you in the heart with a dagger with those threes. And you knew he was going to pump fake on the three, and you still went for it. You still fouled him. And a lot of times he ended up making the three anyway. Sometimes he'd even make it with his left hand. So he was by far the most fun player for me to watch because he just, you know, like Magic Johnson used to call plays out loud, not like, you know, fist left or whatever. He'd just say, you, go over there, set a screen for him, then I'll come over here and you roll off that screen, I'll get you the ball. And they're like, why are you telling the other team what you're going to do? If you do it well enough, there's nothing they can do about it. And Andrew Rossi, he knew what he was going to do, but he did it well enough. There was really nothing you could do about it. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. Hey, Jim, thank you so much for your time. I mean, you're super gracious with it today. Is there anything that you want to plug? Uh, I have a podcast called the Marked Men Podcast. You can find that on all your favorite platforms, iHeart and Stitcher, Google and iTunes and all that with Don Scott Lewinsky. We spell it M-A-R-Q-D-M-E-N because we both went to Marquette. And uh, we've got a bunch of interesting interviews with people in our lives. And I, I started a podcast just because my youngest, I'm, I'll be 49 this month. Is that right? What year is this? 2020? <laughs> I'll be 48, this, I'll be 48 this month. My youngest is three. So I'm probably not going to really get to know my grandkids that well from those kids. And, and I, I didn't really know my grandparents that well. I would have given anything to hear a conversation they had with anybody on any subject for 10 or 15 minutes. So I felt like a podcast was a great way for me to capture pieces of my life that'll float around on the interwebs forever. And my grandkids and great grandkids can learn a little bit about Grandpa Jim or Great Grandpa Jim. You know what? That's a great, that's a great reason to start a podcast. We started because we just played morning ball together and we were talking about how much we liked basketball from the past. So <laughs> that's a lot better answer than we had for I don't care if anybody listens to it. We've had some interesting people on. Danny Pudi, who went to Marquette, was our first Marquette alum on there. We've had Wojciechowski on there and Kevin O'Neill and and some Jack Nicholas and some people like that. But oh, wow. I just – I did it that, – that was more of like a group interview that my co-host, John Scott Lewinsky, who is the world's most interesting man and travels the world doing like golf course reviews and golf equipment reviews and – um, he knows everything there is to know about alcohol, you know, and, and scotches and brandies and whiskeys. And he gets to, like, he came up here for the 4th of July fireworks at Road America. And he's driving a brand new red uh, Mercedes-Benz SUV because, he's you know, he does automotive reviews for different magazines. And they give him the best of the best in the press fleet because wow. nobody's writing any articles right now. So he's he's got a pretty cool gig, too. And, and it's, it's fun to hear about who he's seeing and, and meeting and where he's going and all kinds of stuff. That's awesome. 
Jim, like I said, thanks again for giving so much time. We really appreciate it. Your insight was amazing today. Zach, do you have anything you want to add before we uh, let Jim get out of here? Uh, I just want to say thank you again. Really appreciate the time. And, uh, you know, I was a big fan of yours and the Sonics back in the day. So, and I'm a Marquette fan. So it was a lot of fun, you know, following your career when I was younger. So appreciate the time. It's awesome to kind of hear your perspective. And, you know, we'll definitely be checking out your podcast as well. Absolutely. I appreciate it, guys. Thanks for having me on. At Jim McElvain on Twitter, right? Yeah. <laughs> All right. right you on, guys Jim. take care. Take care. Have a great week, buddy. All right. Thanks. Thanks, Jim. Yeah, he just gave us a ton of information. You know, the thing I liked about it was he gave us information about stuff that we don't think about as fans or, uh, you know, stuff about, like, the bullets and how bad the parking situation was. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, or, you know, the, the bird poop. Like, I've yeah. never known that. It's just uh, it's a lot of things you would never hear um in you know another podcast or another news source just uh those stories are what i enjoy most just the things that you would never know unless you were told absolutely and i think it's cool too because the one thing that i took away from the interview um two things actually it was interesting he came from a music family because right off the bat he asked me about music which i thought was interesting because he saw the guitar hanging up but number two the thing i thought was really interesting is the difference in how organizations are run and most of the time, those organizations that are top-notch are usually the ones that are competing for championships. Yeah. You know, the ones that cut the corners. I mean, think about He made a great point when he was talking about, like, well, Juwan Howard has a, has a parking pass to park inside the building. And, and you know, Chris Webber has a parking pass. And it <laughs> sounds stupid. It sounds really stupid. But those things are like little, little notches in the division of the team when you think about it. You know what I mean? People start – start getting a little chippy about things like that. And, I, and that's why I brought up Cuban because Cuban was the first guy to really be like the first owner, like everything's first class gents, like the locker room is going to be amazing. The, the plane is going to be amazing. And you know what? They have a championship and they compete every year and they bring in great guys and people want to play for them. Yeah. And uh, when Cuban stepped in that, you know, that uh, franchise is not in a good spot. No. And then he stepped in and completely turned everything around. And that's just for making it a first-class organization, like you said. Just completely flopped the whole thing. Any quick thoughts on that? But, uh, I mean, final thoughts, not really. I uh, just want to give a couple shout-outs. Um, Shea Cotton's cousin personally messaged me after nice. the, of the Shea Cotton uh, episode, just thanking us for, you know, having his cousin on um, and kind of getting his story out there and promoting his documentary. That's awesome. And it just kind of goes to show what a great family that is, uh, just all around, just great people, really uh, appreciative, polite. Uh, also, there's another shout out um, to Creative Coaching Podcast. They okay. reached out to us, listened to a couple of our episodes, really liked what we're doing. Uh, they thought the Rod Benson, the Travis Diener episode was really good. And you should check out theirs too, because they have really cool guests like Rex Walters and some other big coaches. And, uh, think uh if you like this you might like that one too awesome very very cool um just to get out of the way at the end of the at the end of the pod um you can find us all over the place uh definitely giving us reviews on itunes makes a difference um and uh all over social media so if you uh subscribe to us which takes two seconds 
Every episode goes right into wherever your inbox is and wherever you're subscribing. Um, reviews take two seconds to do, and, or, you know, or like a, rank, like a rating would, a review maybe like 30 seconds to a minute. But we appreciate all of them. We're approaching 50 reviews, which is pretty crazy for a podcast that's been only around for five months. Um, big thanks again to Jim McElvain. Yeah, a lot of really good insight and information, and, and I really enjoyed listening to him and, and, uh, and everything. So I'm going to enjoy my weekend, Zach. We got some more guests coming up soon, too. It's been amazing how many people are jumping up on this, so we appreciate it. Um, anything you want to add before we get out of here? Just thanks again to Jim McElvain. Love talking to him. Uh, great dude. Gave us more time than expected. And that's what's really great about these guys. They're giving us the time. They want to talk. And it's just really – it's been really pleasant. And especially Jim McElvain. really enjoyed that one. Absolutely. Well, ladies and gentlemen, not my house is getting on out of here. So enjoy your weekends. And uh, we'll catch